If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. How does systemic racism relate to environmental issues? And what do we need to keep in mind about the role that privilege has to play in sustainable living? That's what we'll be exploring today in this mini Bloom Tuesday episode, featuring our special guest who has a background in this field and who's also highly respected for her thoughtful, heavily research-based approach to her writing. Before we do that, though, I wanted to take a moment to first thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Made Trade. Made Trade is a new online marketplace for exceptionally designed, responsibly made goods, from ethical fashion to sustainably made home decor. You can also shop according to your values, discovering fair trade, sustainable, USA-made, vegan, and heritage products, all handmade by makers and artisans around the world. I'll share more at the end along with an exclusive discount code just for you for the holidays. But for now, on to how we can be more mindful about the language that we use so we can help sustainability become a more inclusive and uniting space. Sharing her expertise with us and starting off with what got her interested in this topic in the first place, here's the writer and blogger behind ethicalunicorn.com, Francesca Willow. A lot of it came out of the master's degree that I did, which involved studying critical race theory and also looking at sort of aspects of environmentalism and anthropology and culture and all these different things that do intersect. But I was looking at them in separate classes that I was taking. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about them being connected. At the same time, I had a lot of friends who were maybe experiencing, even on a daily level, like things like microaggressions or things that were going on in their world. So I was kind of talking to them and sort of hearing what was happening to them at the same time as studying things. And then it all sort of came together the start of this year, basically 2018. In early February this year, there was some sort of online 
controversy with package free shop and I'm not going to like trash on package free shop but just give it for context Um, basically there um there there was an Instagram that they posted that said anyone can go zero waste and I kind of understood I think what they meant to say but unfortunately the way it was said wasn't great because then rightly so people start speaking up and saying well that's not true because of x y and z because of this accessibility issue I can't do this and there was kind of some censorship going on and it became this whole sort of little online storm on Instagram. And I was watching it happen and I really felt on their side, there was quite a lack of understanding in the way they were approaching it. And I basically felt like the sort of topic of intersectionality, which is something that I had studied, was just missing from the whole conversation from their side of things. And I think we talk about intersectionality a lot or we have done sort of academically, but also in like cultural conversation a lot when it comes to feminism. And people talk a lot about white feminism and how that isn't really feminism for everyone. And I could basically see like very similar patterns of behavior and attitude happening in this situation. Yeah, I just felt like it was really important that we also added those perspectives to the way that we're talking about and approaching environmentalism, basically, like we have to understand it in the same way. So I yeah I wrote a blog post about about intersectionality and why that matters for environmentalism and since then it's kind of affected just the the lens through which I'm looking at everything I've just been more aware of the fact that those things are connected and that, that I was able to and should bring my studies more into the sustainability world because from my perspective it's a bit of a funny one because I am white and a very privileged person but I felt like um a lot of other people that were white or were privileged weren't addressing this side of the issue at all. I definitely feel like like diverse voices should be heard and should be raised up to be given a platform. But at the same time, I feel like as white people or people that hold privilege, it's also our job to educate ourselves and not ask people who are already marginalized to do the hard work of educating us. So I decided to write about it and to address it more because I felt like it was important to do that. Um, Why do you think it wasn't really talked about beforehand? (laughs) Kind of because a lot of the people who are the people that are having these conversations are people that hold privilege. So it doesn't even occur to them to think about other factors that may affect other people's lives. Because if it doesn't affect you personally, it's so easy for it to not even cross your mind. There are some people like in the world today who are aware right. of this and deliberately ignore it. But so many people, it's complete, completely accidental, I think, a lot of the time. Because society is so skewed to the privilege. So things like nearly all of our media you know, there's a lack of diversity across the board. So if you're looking around and everyone around you has a similar lifestyle to you and doesn't have these struggles, it would never occur to you. Like if everyone that say we look at zero waste, for example, and everyone around you has the accessibility, the income and the ability to live a zero waste lifestyle easily, then of course, in your head, you'll think, oh, everybody can. Because if you just don't have that diversity around you, or you don't know anyone or see any stories represented of people who have a different experience, then I think it's really easy to forget the whole world isn't like the world that you see in front of you. And I think that's a larger issue in terms of, yeah, if we just don't have access to diverse stories and perspectives, I think, then it's really easy to forget. (laughs) So for someone who hasn't really thought about this much, what have you learned in terms of how uh, systemic racism and environmental issues are intricately tied together and connected? Yeah, so basically, the more that I study and the the older I get, the more that I come to the conclusion that 
almost every problem that we are currently facing has its roots in colonialism and white heteronormativity. And some some element of those things is always at play. And obviously, systemic racism is the more, uh, I think, can be the more obvious one to a lot of people, because the systems that we have in society, whether that be education, law enforcement, everything across the board, the jobs, these all these systems that we have in sort of the quote unquote modern world were built by these like colonial straight white men. And so these systems still favor them now. And it can be easy to sort of miss the link to environmental issues because it's a little more hidden, I think, or it can be. But I think the root is the same. And I actually wrote about this in my intersectionality blog post. So I'm going to quote myself. Yeah, we'll link Um, to that in the show notes so we can dive deeper into it. The way that I broke it down was impact and participation. Um, So in terms of like the impact when it comes to environmental issues, the people that are most adversely affected by environmental problems are usually those that hold less privilege, whether it's globally poorer nations, which like as a side note, are often nations whose economies were destabilized and have had their societies overhauled by colonialists. So that's a whole other like kettle of fish. But they don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to protect themselves against natural disasters. So it means when we have big issues caused by climate change, they're going to be the ones that are going to be hurt a lot more than those who have access to more resources and more money to protect themselves when things get bad. And you can see that in the international community, but also closer to home, like in America, you can see it in the reaction to Hurricane Katrina and even like Flint, Michigan, like that's still ongoing. So it's not just an international thing, but you can even see the levels of privilege and systemic problems there. So you can't really look at these issues and who is being hurt the most without acknowledging that factors like race and poverty have to be taken into account. And then also how those things are dealt with. And basically, if people are motivated to change and help, I think a lot of the time, if it's not hurting affluent white people, then there's less um, eagerness to fix things. The Dakota Access Pipeline, I think, was a good example of that, because I think that pipeline was originally meant to go through a rich white neighborhood, and then they didn't want that to happen. So they moved it to native land things like that. So you need intersectionality for environmental activism because I think we have to be aware of how these issues are going to affect people across the world who are more more marginalized. And then at the same time, we have to look at that in terms of participation. So intersectionality is often talking about fighting for the rights of people who come across a broad identity spectrum. And we also have to remember, I think, that these different these different intersecting things also are things that can prevent people from participating in activist movements. And you can't shame them because of that. I wrote a lot of people can do something, but we have to recognize that these people often hold some level of privilege that allows them to do so. Um, Hannah Thiessen, who runs the blog Lifestyle Justice, she wrote a blog post talking about that the responsibility of ethical living has to be the responsibility of the global 1%. And I do agree with that because there are, there's a whole variety of people who literally live paycheck to paycheck, you know, struggling to get by, trying to just be able to do things like afford healthcare and put food on the table. And there are often a lot of factors going on there, like their class and their gender and their race and all those things are linked. And so you can't then shame that person if they're not able to fully participate because they're already dealing with living in a world (laughs) that has more odds stacked against them than those of us who have a lot more privilege. We can walk through some areas a lot more easily. So we have a lot more time, resource, mental ability to get involved in activism. And I think that's when we also have to try and take on a little bit more of that responsibility because we have the privilege to be able to. 
I think caring about the environment means that you have to care about marginalized people because the privileged already have the means to protect themselves. So it's about wanting to create and maintain a world that is going to look out for everyone, not just people who can continue to afford to look after themselves and move if this neighborhood floods and things like that. And to allow the marginalized to even be involved in sustainable activism, they also need access to economic stability, healthcare, uh, policies that don't discriminate against them. You can't really, I think you can't progress in one area if you don't also progress in the other, basically. And what is at stake when we're insensitive to people's varying accessibility and privilege when we talk about sustainability? We can't actually create a fully sustainable future when we're not thinking about different levels of access and privilege. And I think there's kind of two sides to that. It could be on the consumer side. Like if there are no options made available to people with varying different types of bodies or human experiences, then how are they ever supposed to get involved? You know, how is someone who's plus size or disabled meant to buy sustainable fashion if there's nothing on the market that they can buy? Or how are you know, like people of color meant to buy non-toxic makeup if there's nothing that even is in the right shade for them? Um, so there's kind of that side on an individual level, but also when it comes to large scale policy and, and the way that we shape society, if we're if we're wanting to move forward and create policy and try and build this better society that we need in order to, for the planet to keep going, um, if we don't consider different levels of privilege and access, then we're not actually going to create a better society. We're only going to make life easier for people who are already privileged. So we'll make life easier and better for those people and absolutely nobody else. Right. So we'll basically just continue this systemic oppression of the same. It's like more sustainable, but the same, the roots of the issue is still there. They're still there. Yeah. So people like the, a good example, actually, is the straw ban that's just happened in Europe. Like they've banned a lot of single use plastics and some of those single use plastics being banned is great. But the thing about straws, the whole time that policy was being sort of consulted, created, implemented, all of these things, it's like nobody thought to consult one single disabled person because there are people with really specific disability needs where a plastic straw is the only kind of straw that will work for them because it won't injure them. It's flexible and it's not going to fall apart. Like there's multiple reasons. And so even just the slight change of that policy, if it was just as opposed to an outright ban, like straws have to be opt-in because most people don't even think about it. But if a there's an option there for a disabled person to ask to have a straw. Um, even just like that tiny change would be able to basically cater to the disabled community and also reduce that amount of plastic that was being thrown away in straws, in bars or wherever, where people, the majority of people weren't thinking about it. Um, so it doesn't make a future that's better for everyone. It makes a future where the able-bodied are able to feel great about themselves and how well they're helping the oceans, while people who are already have these accessibility issues and now have another thing on their plate to worry about. A lot of the times I think people that are affected by these issues, they know what needs to happen. Not always, obviously some issues are really complex, but a lot of time there are people can say, this is what we need. Uh, This is the platform we need. This is the kind of policy that we need. And it's just about listening to those voices, amplifying them and supporting them. I think I read online the best the first step to a better society is caring about things that don't directly affect you mm-hmm. so I think going out there and seeing especially something like the disabled community there are organizations whose entire purpose is to support those communities and vocalize these things so finding those organizations and finding how to best support them I think it sounds like consciously seeking out 
diverse voices and listening is really important going forward. What else can we do as individuals to be more mindful of uh, our messaging, the language that we use so that we can have sustainability be a more inclusive and supportive space that uh, helps everybody rather than one that excludes and further divides people? I basically started with implementing it into the way I was living my life and the way I was looking at things and the way I was relating to people. The first thing that I had to do was to start being mindful about assumptions that I might make about someone based on how, you know, they might look to me, they might present a certain way, but that's not necessarily what's actually the reality of their life. Um, There were certain sort of second nature kind of habits that I was like, I'm going to break these and I'm going to work to choose language and a way of behaving towards people that isn't going to hurt someone. And so I make a really active choice to say they when I'm talking about someone or meet someone unless they've specified like their pronouns to me or like if it's a if it's a plural group, then I might say folks or people. And I kept reminding myself to do that. And sometimes I still make a mistake and I just apologize straight straight away. Say I didn't intend to hurt you. I'm so sorry, but I'm really working on changing this. Um, I think that's probably a lot better than pretending that you didn't do anything wrong or kind of ignoring it. But like even getting myself, training myself in those little things then was helping me in terms of how I was viewing people in society and like not making assumptions about anything that's going on just because of what I can see on the surface. Mm. And then I always try and ask people in kind of a clear and direct but non-aggressive way what they would be comfortable with and again instead of just making assumptions obviously this totally depends on the situation if it's like online or real life or anything but I would all might ask someone how would you like me to refer to you and uh, like do you have a way that you identify or a pronoun um if it's in-person interaction I might say are you comfortable with me giving you a hug as opposed to just like going in just something that I might feel comfortable with that they might not. Um, if someone's coming into a space, maybe like an event, you know, you can I can say, does this space make you feel comfortable or is there something that I could do to change it? And then online when I'm writing, I always try and acknowledge um, the privilege that I'm carrying that affects the lens that I'm seeing the world through. And I always try and be open. So I tend to do a little sort of disclaimer and say, look, I know that I am uh, white, straight, cisgendered, um, but I want to talk about this because I feel like it's not being talked about very much. However, if you're someone who is actually directly affected by this issue, like please reach out to me. And this platform is always a place where your voice can be heard and I want it to be used for that. So I can... I will always like amend things or um, give people the chance to have their voice heard on my platform in some way. And then I also found a a couple of like top tips, which I try and use, which I find really helpful. And the first one is put people first in terms of like how you're describing people. They talk about person first constructions. So instead of saying, oh, that's a blind man saying um, a man who is blind, I think it validates their personhood as the most essential thing. And then also mentioning things like someone's gender or their race or religion or whatever, if it's actually relevant, like showing that they are, they're a person in their own right and they're not just this label that's put on them. And then also choosing affirmative over negative descriptions. I sent you a little image so you can. Yeah, we will definitely attach that. It's super helpful. Yeah. Like affirmative term is like, people with disabilities and a negative term is the disabled and like just those little switches in language when you're like actively being concerned with people and people that maybe aren't the same as you that would then affect it affects how I'm talking to people day to day but then it affects how I'm writing and it affects how I'm I am in public situations and it 
it ripples out. It would affect how I run a business because I'm training my brain in the habit of considering that not everyone is living the life I'm living. And maybe that's really oversimplistic and it doesn't work for everyone, but that definitely works for me. Right. And I feel like in turn, your readers must also really respect that you take this approach and therefore you're able to reach more people and inspire more people uh, with your writing. I hope so. People have been really um, kind in their feedback. And if I, if they ever have asked me to correct something, people are always really considerate about it because I think they know that I'm coming from a place where I'm not trying to condescend to anyone. Right. <laughs> but I'm also not perfect and I'm not above correction. So people, yeah, my readers are so lovely. I'm really lucky, I think. Yeah, I mean, you put all the good out there. So, you know, uh, it's just coming back to you. And to close off, I want to also say that I really admire and respect uh, your writing because you do so much research and you're so thoughtful about uh, the impact that your words may have on other people. Um, so that's definitely something that we have to keep learning from so we can strengthen this movement together. Mm-hmm. So where can we go to follow you online and on social media to learn more? Yeah, so my blog is called Ethical Unicorn. So literally just ethicalunicorn.com. I am on Instagram predominantly. Um, I'm also floating around uh, Twitter and Pinterest and Facebook and everywhere. Um, (laughs) And it's all at Ethical Unicorn. And that's a wrap for this Bloom Tuesday. If you want to shop ethically made products but aren't sure where to start, you have to check out our sponsor for this episode. I was so excited to learn about them and could not wait to share this with you as well. Made Trade is a beautifully curated online marketplace for exceptionally designed, responsibly made goods. You can discover sustainable, fair trade, USA-made and vegan products from clothing to shoes and even home decor and lighting. The marketplace is just gorgeous and you can tell that they're really thoughtful in everything that they do and their vibrant aesthetic also just makes me really happy to thank you for being here you can get 15 dollars off your first purchase for this holiday season with the promo code dreamer and you can start browsing and shopping now on madetrade.com that's m-a-d-e-t-r-a-d-e.com made trade ethically elevated Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You'll be able to find links and resources from this episode at greendreamer.com slash episode 90 for episode 90. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram as always at Kamea Shane. Finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>